Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Weddale. Today we hear from Ravi Ahuja, chairman of Global Television Studios at Sony Pictures Television. Plus Cineflix's JC Mills and James Jury, Asylum Entertainment's Jodie Flynn, Critical Content's Jenny Daly, Blink 49's Toby Dormer, Creative Chaos's Elan Arbaleda, and Photoplay's Karen Radziner. All from Content London 2023. C21's Content London wrapped in the UK capital yesterday after a fantastic few days of discussion, debate, packed out meeting schedules, sneak peeks of exciting new shows and keynotes from leading players across the international TV industry. Everyone from Peaky Blinders Stephen Knight and godfather of Harlem's Chris Brancato to Netflix unscripted chief Brandon Rieg, Banerjee boss Marco Bassetti and Universal International Studios Beatrice Springborn and Roma Karna convened on the King's Place Conference Centre and St Pancras Renaissance Hotel to talk about the latest trends shaping the industry, strike up co-production relationships and position themselves for the year ahead. In a moment, we'll hear from Cineflix's JC Mills and James Jury, Asylum Entertainment's Jodie Flynn, Critical Content's Jenny Daly, Blink 49's Toby Dormer, Creative Chaos's Elon Arbaleda, and Photoplay's Karen Radziner. But first, Ravi Ahuja, chairman of Global Television Studios at Sony Pictures Television, delivered his first international keynote interview at Content London, sitting down with C21 chair Mark Rowland to discuss the company's growing slate, the interplay between different parts of the business, the impact of the strikes, AI and contraction within the industry. It's an absolute pleasure and a privilege to have Ravi Ahuja here with us uh, for this keynote session. It's an extraordinary portfolio that you have. I'd like to talk about all of it if we have time. But actually, and I don't know whether many of the delegates in the room will have seen this, there's an enormous uh, new deal that you've actually yeah. announced this morning, yeah. which is incredibly relevant both to the UK and where we're actually sitting. So, I mean, do you want to tell me about <laughs> yeah. it? I was saying, that Mark is referring to, thank you for having me. Hey, Mark. no, it's great to have Mark you. is referring to an announcement we made this morning on a first look deal with The Guardian. And I was saying to Mark before we came on here that this is our strategy, is to do deals with companies located in the buildings where I speak. Right <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <coughs> nice coincidence. Um, yes, yeah, so it's a first look deal with The Guardian. Um, across all of Sony Pictures Entertainment, actually, so not just television, all the genres of television, but film as well, uh, to work with them on their extraordinary journalism and turning that into film and television. So we just announced that this morning, actually. It's extraordinary. And, and do you, I mean, you mean literally across document, uh, unscripted, unscripted All of it, yes. Film. All of it. In, you know, current, archive, and everything. Yes, all of it, exactly. Has a deal ever been done like that between a studio and a publisher in that way? Uh, there have been things like that with book publishers and occasionally in the past with journalists as well. Um, I don't know if this is the first for The Guardian. I'm not sure, but, but there have been deals like that that have been done in the past. And it's really, from the standpoint of a studio, it's a way to access popular stories, Good stories. It's a form of IP, if you if you think yeah. of it that way in business speak. Well, look, fascinating, and I look forward. I'm sure in the next 12 months to learning more about that. And I, I would have thought without doubt celebrating, um, you know, the first products of that relationship in about 12 months' time. I also feel when we've had this session, we should go out and knock on the wall and you know cheer for the Guardian <laughs> and right. Sony. Uh, moving back to the wider picture. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's an extraordinarily broad slate, and of course, along with all big studios, you've had a very challenging few months. Yes. Um, you know, what does it look like at the moment, you know, two weeks after the end of the strike? Are things getting back to some version of normal? They are. They are. And obviously, this is primarily a U.S. issue, right? What's happened in U.S. scripted with the WGA and SAG strikes. Um, so things are getting back to normal now. It doesn't feel normal because it's a mad scramble to get it all going again. But they are returning to normal in that sense. I, I do think, I mean, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, this is an interesting inflection point for our industry with COVID, with union issues, with streaming resets, so many things happening. Um, so it's, it's a new normal. Let's look at it that way. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to the night agent getting into production. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm waiting to see what on earth he can do now. He's safe for president <laughs> in the second season. So I hope yeah. that's, that gets back up fast. I mean, one of the, the, the questions, I suppose, that's often raised about Sony is for a studio of your scale, mm -hmm. you don't have 
a platform. Yes. Um, yes. And I know in your past you came from huge content companies, yes. Fox and Disney, where platforms were, were yes. central to the yes. strategy. How does it look from a Sony perspective? It looks really good. I mean, look, part of the reason that I'm here, I came to Sony almost three years ago, um, was I saw firsthand the complexity of operating in that kind of environment. And here at Sony is a very large independent studio. We have the benefit of a lot of resources, all that stuff you guys saw, plus a whole lot of other things, but with a very focused mission. Make great shows, find the right home. That's it, right? It's not overly complicated by trying to satisfy platform demands, trying to balance different things. We are a studio. For most of our business, we do have some different things, like in India and Crunchyroll, which is our anime service. But for general entertainment, we are focused on that, on make great shows, find the right home. And there's enormous, I think most people here probably agree just from your own careers, there's enormous power in focus. It allows you to just get up every day and have you and your teams just do one thing, right? Um, <clears throat> I find that's great. When you balance the different things, um, you, you risk you know, not achieving much by trying to do too much. Yeah, but, but, it's, but it's, a, it's a tough market. It is a very tough market. It is. Uh, that mission is very clear and straightforward, but it's not easy. <laughs> right, it's not easy. Yeah, um, because, because looking even some of the you know, announcements in the UK, where Alex Mahon of, of Channel 4 was saying you know, that, that we were literally in, in shock territory yes. in terms of the available funds given the advertising downturn. Yes. So that's the market you're selling into. For, no question. I mean, look, even before the strikes, the volumes had dropped um, you know, a decent percentage. So there is, against the strikes and all the rest of it and the ad market contraction around the world, you have this streaming reset happening at the same time. So it's almost as though we ran through this phase where the industry was, was too hot. And now it almost feels like it's really cooling off quite a lot. Um, but, you know, from our point of view, we have 200 shows. So we're still able to get shows sold. We have un what's even more important than quantity is quality. We have you know, 17 of our shows are number one on their platforms at the time they appear. So it's things like that that matter a lot, right? Retention rate, continually producing hits. And as long as we can continue to do that, we'll see some contraction, but I think we're okay. And, and how do you see streaming? I mean, where do you, what, what is going to happen? Yeah. What level of contraction? Um, predictions. Um, I think that there's going to be some contraction, but I do think over time there'll be a bit of a rebundling. Um, so I think in the end it won't be this environment. So in the end, by that I mean later this decade, I don't think it'll be subscribers subscribing to individual platforms and a la carte assembling their television experience. I think the big tech platforms will start to consolidate that. The YouTubes, the Apples, the Googles, and you'll get five services for 50 pounds, that type of thing and you'll choose which ones, yeah. and have potentially a single interface. And, and in terms of that, its impact on linear, <clears throat> the mm -hmm. death of which is often predicted but never occurs. Yes. And how do you see that? It, the, the sorts of things are generational, I think. So I think we'll still have linear TV eight or nine years from now. It'll be smaller, but I think we'll still have it. I think it'll vary a little bit from market to market yeah. um, as well. So it depends uh, on where you are. But, but as you look at that rapidly changing market, um, in content terms, you know, do you have a particular focus? I mean, you do so much, but as you're trying to navigate that and you're trying to navigate you know, the economics and who's buying in what way, yes. where, do you, where do you see your focus at the moment? Yeah, it's a couple different things. I mean, our bread and butter is scripted content, right? That's the, the biggest business we have across film and television. So we focus there, we focus on hits. It's very idea-driven. That business by its nature is. It's not particularly genre-driven or you don't say we have to do this type of story. You, you look for the best idea and you work with creators and you're driven by their motivations. But in other areas, we do look for specific things that we focus in on. So for example, I mentioned anime. We do see that as a growth market. We've taken a leadership position. In the United States, game shows, quiz shows, one of the oldest genres is one of our highest growing areas. Um, because we look at it as areas where we have the license to do well, to do a lot. There's a lot of demand, not a lot of competition. Yeah, and you're seeing strong reboots in, in, yes. those, in those big, exactly. big games. Exactly. Um, so it's a mix. We aren't overly prescriptive about what we focus on, but where we see success, we kind of lean in. Yeah. And then there are things we try. We're focused a lot right now on kids. 
because we think there's an opening in the marketplace that all the streaming platform, not all the streaming platforms, certainly not Disney, but many of the streaming platforms have kind of let kids go over to YouTube. So we think there's more of an opportunity there. But again, but we'll see. As you, as you talk about that and, and also looking at your success in a, in a, in a very big niche, anime with Crunchyroll. Mm -hmm. I mean, you say kids, doesn't that tempt you towards you know, a platform that will deliver that? Not necessarily. I mean, I think what kids represents for the platforms is a retention tool, okay. right? As a, if you're a parent of young children, my children are older now, but if you're a parent of younger children, I don't have to tell you that if your kid <laughs> is watching a particular thing, you're not leaving that service. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's great babysitting, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And again, with, with, with Sony, I mean, one of the things that's extraordinary at the moment is people talking about, um, in a sense, tech platforms consuming content companies. Yeah. And you think, well, hold on a second. That's what Sony did. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, it's funny, Mark. I always talk about the tech companies as though it's a different company, I know. but we are a tech company. Yeah. And, and so, which leads <laughs> me on to the fact that, you know, sit, sitting at the, at the top of Sony with all this discussion about yes. consolidation because these tech companies are coming after content. <laughs> I know, we're the original. Yeah, <laughs> which sort of brings me on to ask about synergies because yes. I think over the, the, the history of the relationship with Sony, um, maybe it's fair to say that people have expected greater synergies than have sometimes happened. Yeah. And yet this year, with, with right. things like The Last of Us, you've actually seen it, some cracking synergies. It's finally happening 32 years later. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, there, there are a lot of things. I mean, look, the interesting thing for me, again, in coming to Sony a few years ago, is I think Sony Corporation is the ideal parent. I really do. I mean, it's a company that's in very similar businesses like music and PlayStation, which aren't exactly the same, but are adjacent, where mm -hmm. some of those synergies lie. Um, and then some other areas that we don't talk as much about, like Sony Music Japan, which has an anime studio and is partnered with us on Crunchyroll. So there's a lot of different areas there where we can work together, but the company's in great financial health. I think we are, apart from the giant new tech companies, I think we're the healthiest company yeah. from a balance sheet point of view. We never have an issue with funding development or funding big movies, which we mm -hmm. do all the time. We've done, even in the time I've been at this company, billions of dollars of M&A. So we have plenty of resources, everything we need there. But then, exactly the question you just asked, Mark, with, with the other Sony companies, we're seeing now really some material synergies. Uh, on the television side with PlayStation, Last of Us Twisted Metal, which did very, very well as well. And we've got 10 more in development across film and television, including you know, big PlayStation titles like Horizon Zero Dawn, God of War, so there's a lot there. We think there's a lot to mine, and we're just beginning to work with Sony Music in a deeper way as well. How, how will that work? I mean, what, what will that manifest? You know, a lot of different things. I mean, obviously, they have a roster of a tremendous number of artists who are incredibly popular, right? Again, it's a form of IP, I say in quotes, because there's built-in awareness among fan bases. But there's also the big publishing catalogs with which we can do a lot. So that's still early stages, is that intentional strategy, um, but we're working through that as well. So there's a lot there. And then, by the way, there are synergies on the tech side as well. Uh, we acquired a company almost a year ago called Pixo, which does virtual production and VFX and works with Sony Electronics and with us. So there are other things as well. And, and, and thinking of Sony, which you know was the ultimate leader in, in technology, um, you know, AI has been a very big focus of mm -hmm. what we're talking about here this week. No question. Um, and, and AI is, is applied to lots of things that, to my mind, appear to be AI, and quite a lot of things where companies just think they'll add the words, the letters A and I to I the agree. end of it. But, you know, if any company was going to crack the synergy between AI and content, you know, historically it ought to be Sony. Do you have, do you have plans? Yeah, that'd be great. I think first we have to figure out what AI is. <laughs> Um, anyway, because I think we're talking about, usually when people are concerned about it, they're speaking about generative AI. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's, it's going to be a long, long road. I mean, these things tend to take a long time before they become really commercial. Um, look, I think the, the hope in all of us in the industry is that AI is a tool, not a replacement, <laughs> which, which is, I think, what it's going to be. Um, so there's a very long road. I don't know yet. I mean, it really depends on what happens along the way. Yeah. Moving away from looking at sort of specific content, you have an absolutely global footprint. Yes. Um, and you've been taking some, you know, initiatives, most, most particularly in, in India. Yes. How, how, how is that, 
How is that? Could you could you tell us a bit more about the logic of that? But also, I yeah. I think I saw a, a news piece yesterday that said. You know, that deals a bit in the balance at the moment. So you know, it'd be good to know a little bit more about that. Yeah, so two parts to that. So in terms of our global footprint, I mean, obviously our biggest you know, territories of operation are the US, UK, uh, Mexico, Brazil, Australia, India. In India, we have a business that's networks, a streaming service, and content production. So there we do everything because it's kind of its own market. We're also, as a company, big in Japan, obviously, although that's operated in a different company that's focused in Japan. Um, we, we do look at different markets uh, along the way. We've been in different markets at different times. Um, you know, our criteria are it's a country that is large itself, can produce global content, has you know, good writing talent, a history of it, and where there's a way to get in where there's a material size company that you can build there or acquire. For us, if it's, we have a small presence in one country, it's usually not the best idea for us because it can kind of get lost. With regard to India, you know, we like that market a lot. It's a young market, it's growing, it's the fastest growing major economy. The average age there is 28, amazingly. And most developed markets like the US and UK, it's in the 40s. So you have a, it's a country where people love entertainment, so there's a lot of growth ahead there over the very long term. And Sony takes this very patient approach, which, by the way, is another great thing at Sony is you don't have to get to nirvana overnight, right? It's you can kind of take your, your time with it. So our approach to India is to have a big presence and to do so over time. We entered into this deal two years ago with Z. We're still working to complete that deal. Yes, if you follow that market, you've read a lot about it. I can't get into the specifics because it's active M&A. Um, but no matter what happens, we'll grow in India. Yeah. Right. And, and do you have other uh, emerging markets in your sites alongside that? You know, we, we are looking actively at a lot of different ones. Um, you know, we, again, want to be careful about how we do it. So if we go into a market, we want to do it in a, in a material way so it doesn't just get lost in that vast portfolio. Yeah, and obviously, uh, I mean, M&A has been, you know, a, a, I mean, it's a, it's a huge part of your personal yes. background. Um, and obviously, Sony has been active in that, in that market, particularly active here in terms of, of, of acquisition. Are you still actively looking for, for, for M&A? Oh, products? yes. I spend a lot of time on it. I'm very, <laughs> very active. We look at everything. Um, so, you know, we are very active. It's an important tool for us, as it is for every media company. It has been. I mean, media is a business where if you're looking at it from an academic point of view, it looks like it's kind of growing nicely over time, but the turbulence within is tremendous. So businesses that decline and businesses that grow, and a lot of our job as media executives is to get more of the growth going, right? Because uh, there are th things are going to go up and down over time. That happens with shows, that happens with businesses. So M&A becomes a big tool there. So we've sold things, we've bought things, and we'll continue to do that. Has you know, the, 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 the arrival of Candle Media and yeah. their vast pool of money changed the market in terms of... Uh... It sure did. Um, yeah, I was saying earlier that the, the market had gotten a little too hot, right? So in terms of overall deals in the United States, investment in shows, um, it, you know, acquisitions like the Candle Media and by others had gotten the market to this place where there's a tremendous amount of inefficiency, deals that didn't make sense, but also just even in, in our world of day-to-day -day production, production processes that became really wacky. Right, where TV started to look like film as well. Projects were brought out when they weren't really ready. Um, so a lot of problems. And I think now as the industry cools a little bit from that very hot pay, uh, pace, I think there are a lot of opportunities to bring some efficiencies in so that the consumer, the viewer, still is able to get a nice robust slate of shows. But you know, streaming services can ration their resources a little bit better yeah. than they have. So actually, there may be positives out of the... I think so. Okay. Maybe I'm just too optimistic, but I think so. <laughs> and Sony itself, I mean, yes. you know, we've talked about whether Sony should be, you know, discussed more often as one of the kind of, you know, historic tech aggregators. But, you know, you could also be an M&A target yourself, given the scale of what people are talking I, about. I suppose that's true, but the company's pretty big. Right, the overall company is pretty big. I don't know if you mean Mark Sony Pictures or if you. Mean I didn't mean Sony overall. Sony like, overall, Sony right? Pictures, like, so, so Sony Pictures. Yeah, I mean, look, that the company is Sony Group has said the Sony Pictures is not for sale, so they publicly said that. 
Um, it doesn't feel to me like Sony takes that view and it had years where things didn't go so well and now things are going very well. So I, I don't think it's, it's likely. <laughs> Um, but then, as, as I've said before at other things, I worked at Fox when the company was sold, and I didn't think that company would be sold either. <laughs> how, how does, I mean, it's interesting, because you obviously went through a fascinating time yes. at Fox and Disney. I mean, how does it compare? I mean, how does it compare? is it literally the case that you didn't know that was, was coming up before it came up? Yeah. <laughs> it's literally the case. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I think that there was a decision to sell the company, and <laughs> the company was sold. So, I mean, it's not as though I heard about it and, sure, you know, sure. d d after it was done, but it, it was around the time that I started working on it. It was yeah. surprising. Um, and, you know, with Sony, how is it different? It's very stable. I mean, those two companies, which were very large, it was a... Um, it wasn't as you know, kind of calm and stable as this is. And I think that's what I talked about before, it's the focus. I mean, what we get up and do, there's some of my colleagues who are out here, what we get up and do every day is just figure out how to make great shows and how to get them renewed. You know, and I spend some time on M&A as well, but there's not a lot of time that goes into other things like reorganizations and you know, the spinning off assets and things, things like that, right? Our time tends to go into the job. Yeah. And in fact, when we recruit people, and this is one of my other tests, is are we able to recruit creatives? Are we able to recruit producers? Are we able to recruit executives? My number one recruiting thing with executives is to say, you get to do your job here. And people say, yeah, I can, I can just do my job. <laughs> right? So it's, it's, it's really interesting you say that, because I, I saw, um, there was in, in, in the wonderful way that LinkedIn quotes almost everything that everybody did. You gave a speech to your college uh, a little while back, yeah. you know, and you said that uh, building your career is about adding skill blocks on top of skill blocks, yeah. and w which I think is a is, is a very kind of you know coherent, sensible way to look at it. Another focus I think here over a number of sessions has been bringing in new talent across everything that we do in this industry at a very young stage. And yes. again, you know, is that something that's important to Sony and have you got initiatives to, to, to do that? Yeah, very important. We have many different initiatives, right, uh, around that, many different initiatives, but that is very important. Um, you know, I think that was also an important thing, by the way, in some of the labor uh, discussions over the last couple of months, but that I think studios and guilds share. Um, interestingly, with younger generation, right, so my kids, a lot of people's kids here, I'm sure Gen Z, consumes content in a very different way. So that puts particular importance on it. Um, most of us who are a little bit older, you, you learn basically the same thing as the generation before you, and even the generation a little bit younger, same thing. But when you get down to people who are about 20, 25 years old, it's a very different media landscape. Yeah. Very, very different media landscape. So that puts even more importance on it from a business point of view. Yeah. So no. we do have, you know, initiatives around that. Early to talk about them, but... No, no, no. I, I mean, again, it's fascinating. So, you know, if you look at the entire slate you, you, you run, and then actually at, at the end of the day, you go home and sit down and want to watch television. Yeah. What's your favorite show? <clears throat> okay, so I'll, <laughs> there's, I'll give you some Sony stuff and I'll give you some non-Sony stuff. So I'm gonna, I'll give you a couple, let's see. Recently it's the Sony stuff. I really liked Platonic, which was uh, Rose Byrne and Seth Rogen, which was on Apple. And that's another theory of mine that comedy needs to be reinvented a bit, right? And that's not a theory of mine, it's a theory of everyone's. But I think the execution of that <laughs> key. So that was a show that I like. Two that are coming, um, Obliterated comes out this week from the guys who did Cobra Kai on Netflix. It comes out, I think, tomorrow. Um, really raunchy comedy <laughs> in Las Vegas. So I'm curious to see how that does, but I enjoyed that. Um, there's a show that we've got on Apple coming out in a couple of months called Dark Matter, which I've watched as well, which is fantastic. So remember it, look forward to it when it comes out. So those are a couple that I've just watched recently. Um, Non-Sony, uh, Fargo is back, Yeah, yeah. right? So I love Fargo. I haven't even seen it yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing this new season. Um, so that's a, yet another one. Ravi, thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. It's been absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, and I've got a new list of shows to watch, as I'm sure we have. I'll give you many more. Thank you. And I'm sure we will watch <laughs> with great interest uh, the next steps that uh, Sony Pictures takes under your leadership. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Ravi Ahuja speaking with Mark Rowland. Now, from the floor of the King's Place Conference Centre, a couple of conversations I had with execs at Content London 2023. 
I'm delighted to be joined by Jody Flynn, President and Chief Content Officer for Asylum Entertainment Group, JC Mills, President and Head of Content for Cineflix Productions, Ilan Arbaleda, Co-Founder of Creative Chaos, and Jenny Daly, President of Critical Content Studios. Hello, welcome to Content London, everybody. Great to have you here. Just give us a quick introduction, if you would, each of you to your companies and, and just tell us a little bit about what you're doing at, at Content London this time round. Um, Jody. Thanks, Jonathan. I am with Asylum Entertainment Group and we are part of Endeavor. Uh, we have been for about seven months and kind of sit at the center of their unscripted ventures, which they are going heavily into in the last few months. Uh, we are in London meeting with production companies, buyers, a variety of different meetings in order to make a mark in the UK market. There's really two tiers for us. It's selling shows like everybody here, as well as mergers and acquisitions, making investments in various companies in the US and the UK from uh, minority investments all the way up through uh, full acquisitions. Uh, JC. Uh, we are the production entity um, behind American Pickers, uh, Mayday, long running show for Nat Geo. We do both unscripted and scripted. We're part of the Cinebox Media Group. Um, I'm in London to meet with our UK buyers that we do business with, as well as our UK distribution arm, Cineflix Rights. Ilan. My name is Ilan Arboleda, co-founder and co-CEO of Creative Chaos. Um, we're an unscripted production company um, here in London to meet with uh, production partners, buyers, and uh, specifically to do international co-productions. Jenny. Jenny Daly, President of Critical Content. Um, our company mainly focuses on unscripted, but we also look in the scripted division as well in market and documentaries. Um, here at the Content London uh, market to meet with producers, commissioners, as well as we were recently acquired by Centricus, is based in London, so meeting with our primary uh, as far as parent company. Okay, so uh, consolidation, I guess, is. Uh you know, one of the stories that's been very much running throughout the industry in, in uh, 2023. Artificial intelligence, a general contraction, I guess, that we've seen across the board. The strikes that have been happening in, in the US um, as well. You're primarily in the unscripted space, all of you. But let's talk about the strikes to start with. I mean, that has had a ripple effect across the industry, so you know, what's the impact been for, for you guys? There was an impact that I didn't realize, didn't even consider. Um, interestingly, you know, we've dealt with this last 12, 18 months of networks not spending money, just generally across the board. Um, I didn't realize that the strike was actually affecting the unscripted budget also, because they were trying to figure out what scripted was gonna happen and where that money should go. So that was looked at on a consolidated basis to say, what money do we have total? So until things open back up, the, a lot of networks, the bigger networks, weren't really sure what they were gonna do with their dollars as a whole. So now that that's opened back up, it seems like there's a little more wiggle room in terms of dollars freeing up. But I'll, I'll add to that. I don't think it was necessarily just that. I think also, no, sure. I think networks were looking at the ability at this point because of the uh, strike to say, we'll be more conservative about our spend. So it gives our a better bottom line at the end of the year. So it gave them a much stronger, I would say, um, you know, profitability without spending as much as they took a lot of things that were on the shelf and recycled. And it became a market where there was stagnation, not across just scripted, but also unscripted, which was surprising, I think, to all of us, because we thought, oh, this is, a, you know, there's a strike. Of course, they're going to want much more of what we provide. And ironically, it did not. I, I was just going to say, to both of your points, I think that now that these dollars are freeing up, because then now they can plan, right? To yeah, your point, Jesse, they weren't yeah. able to plan because they didn't know how long the strike would go. And now that they're able to plan, they'll hit those bottom lines, as Jenny said, at the end of this year. And in 24, now they'll be able to plan, and that will free up those dollars for 24, both in the unscripted and on the scripted side. Yeah. Yeah, the strike's interesting for me. It's like when I started in the business back in, like, just when the writer strikes had started, that was the beginning of the unscripted boom, right? 07, 08, gave everyone to say, oh, wow, we can make these shows cheaper, they're still doing really well. A lot of those networks are out of the scripted game. So the cable networks that used to buy scripted are just doing unscripted. So the bump, if it was gonna come, was gonna come from the streamers, but also they don't have a linear schedule, so they, they buy what they want when they want it. So we've been, we were hoping for a bump, that never came, unfortunately. I also think because um, so many of these buyers were carrying a lot of debt, it was a good opportunity for them as Jenny was saying, to not spend and clean house. And so I sort of, I felt like on some level I anticipated that because I had so many conversations about the contractions they had on both the employment side, the buying side, everything, that it was not unexpected for me and we were sort of content to ride it out. And I focused on relicensing some of our existing stuff rather than trying to sell new stuff during that time, which was successful. 
One of the things we were able to take advantage of also, and I know other people were, was there were actors who wanted to work that were able to get exemptions from the strike to do some unscripted. And we were able to take advantage of that, people who might nor not normally have time to do unscripted content. And that, that was a bit of a, a boom for us. So actually a beneficial, yeah, I was going to ask that because uh, I guess so much of the unscripted space now we see, it's very much about sort of talent-led, often actor-led uh, a series as well. So, so, but you're saying that actually some of those those names were kind of freed up to do stuff. I think, I think so, yeah. We had at least one that premieres in January who definitely wouldn't have had time prior to the strike. We were able to get it done before the strike ended. So some positives to be taken from it. I mean, it was a tough period. I mean, you know, it, it, as you're saying as well, it was a bit of an opportune moment with the streamers and the studios having overspent so much on content for them to sort of take a bit of a bit of a pause but that budgets have contracted across the board as a result and that has obviously affected unscripted as well though. I think it's always better for people not to be striking. I think I think it's yeah, been contracting be. for years. Yeah, I don't think it's surprising on our end, not surprising, but it is um, I think evident in our global business that everything is consolidating when it comes to you know ad dollars and where they're being spent and where they're not being spent. So I think we're all affected, being affected by it. So it's just being resourceful and how do we reimagine our business models and not necessarily doing a straight, let me just get a, a, a show commission. Yeah. It's how do I package, how do I co-pro, how do I do different business models that's going to allow success beyond just a typical sale. And that's why I think you're seeing American companies like ours here more than you have in the year, in years past, because our buyers are open to those kind of deals in a way they weren't five years ago, maybe even three years oh, ago. Extremely. So I think you're seeing a huge opportunity for American companies to put those co-pros together in ways we weren't able to. Absolutely. In a good way. It's exciting. Yeah, yeah the Canadian model has always been that. You know, it's like tax credits plus, plus, plus. Um, we do a lot of work with the UK networks on an acquisition basis. They become part of our, our finance plan. And then you get the UK network in, plus tax credits, plus distribution advance, US license, you own your show and you're fully financed. It's not, not easy, but it's definitely a model that we're used to working in, and the last 18 months has given us an opportunity to just expand on it. Ilan, you mentioned the fact that you know there's been a, a bit more of an uptick in licensing activity as slight, a result. Slight uptick. Slight uptick, <laughs> okay. slight uptick. I wouldn't say a, a big uptick at all. I mean, I agree with everything, <clears throat> what everybody was saying. Uh, my background prior to this was film finance. Uh, so um, the ability to re, uh, to reimagine your model and be nimble about it, I think, is really key. Uh, and so having come from that finance background and having to constantly reimagine models every time there's a new way to raise money for capital um, uh, sort of allowed us to sort of pivot the way we needed to uh, during this time. And you guys have watched that cycle in the doc space when you could, you know it was so difficult. Then it was like everybody was buying. Now it's back to being very difficult. How do you guys deal with that? Well, um, we. I think it depends, we've been lucky because we've been um, lucky to have a lot of equity and raise a lot of equity in our projects, so it gives us a lot of leverage yeah. to be able to do more things. That ability to have that equity piece there always has always helped us to make things happen, so we, we can either do it with or without. So you knew you were sort of coming to the table with some money, so it wasn't exactly. like starting from scratch. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you talk about equity, you talk about being acquired, um, having a new parent company, consolidation, um, you know, Still, although we're in, in tough economic times, I mean, it does present opportunities for, for other companies as well. Um, but uh, I suppose the, the, the biggest story as far as the unscripted space has been concerned over the past sort of two years has been the consolidation of Warner Brothers um, yeah. and Discovery. And, and that had a tremendous impact on uh, producers working in the unscripted space, a, a sort of a freeze on, on commissions in it, in its own way. So has that kind of eased now? No, I, I mean, I, I see when it comes down to the Discovery Net, Warner Discovery Networks, in that consolidation, unfortunately, a lot of networks were minimized in what they are putting original programming on. Um, you know, all the TNT networks, though, those are just stagnant at this moment. And, you know, companies like True TV or you know, outlets, I don't think they're even buying at this moment. They become same, tiles. Yeah, same with same with uh, TNT and TBS. So it's actually for us has been our market has gotten leaner in, yeah. in our outlets to sell to, and then also because of that, if we have a food show, let's just say it's only going to go to Food Net. It will not be looked at at any other outlet in that in that arena because that's their main focus. So in the past, you could say, oh, it's a food show with other additives. I can go to. Maybe this out, discovery proper, discover you know. So it's it's really changed. But also, you look at networks like the NBC Uni, 
um, they're all under one umbrella now. So you're you're pitching to one buyer for all those networks. E Entertainment, where I used to be the vice president of development, they don't even really have a independent, I'd say, you know, team. team. It's really under. It's one. really changed the way that we we pitch. The leverage, the leverage that we used to have when you could have. You know, you used to pitch, there were like seven or eight male buyers, male skewing buyers going back like six, seven years ago. You could actually go to real screen or whatever market, pitch a bunch of stuff, get an offer, maybe leverage that against something else. Now there's, what are there, two male buyers, maybe? You know, it's like they've taken the, the buyers have taken the leverage out of the game for us, and it's like you're really at the, at the will of them, whatever they want to do. And, and also, when you if you're pitching these groups, you're pitching NBC Universal, you're pitching Warner Brothers Discovery. It used to be we went to these individual networks yeah. and pitched, and to Jenny's point, we could tailor it, right? If it was Food Network or it was travel you or dial whatever it was, you down. dial up yep. and dial down the yep. different elements of a pitch and, and a show that you're creating. Now you're going and you get you get one shot at it and they may be taking a pitch for six different networks. And so you really have to figure out a way to get them to see that it could fit at one of their properties, which is, is a real challenge. Well, the pace is challenging, right? It's like you get into development, you're lucky enough to get into development, lucky enough, and you gotta double the spend they give you to actually make the thing. Then you have to wait like eight months for it to get greenlit. So it's like one whole cycle, a year goes by, and if they don't buy it, you're basically starting over. You can try to go back out with it, you hope you can do it, but it's the pace that is, I think, really Well, and hopefully the people who bought it eight months ago are still there. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a good point. That's, that's, a, good, yeah. that's yeah. a real yeah. problem yeah. because you're, you're problem. selling someone to some, something to someone who's excited about it, and with all the consolidation, there's been so many rounds of layoffs that literally the person who is championing your yeah. project within that buyer might be gone before you get it to a green light. We just experienced that 100% on a, on a series that just premiered in the Discovery Networks, and it literally, the head, you know, as far as commissioner, gone, and then the person underneath her, gone, and that, so everybody who was our champion no longer were there for the second season pickup. So it is a much different climate to work with when you're fighting for a show with you know, limitations on viewership based on how many outlets they can go to with, you know, streaming uh, opportunities and trying to get the awareness of the linear channels out there. It's a, it's a fight. It's an well, interesting and, and fight. And without that champion, and the show does in that sort of middle range bubble, where you're not, where they're not bubble. sure. And almost yes. everything is middle That new person now. is not going to take the risk because what's, the, what's right. the upside for them? There's only downside. Yeah. Show's a hit, they say, sure, let's renew it. In that bubble range, they're going to say no every time. Your bubble range is your And you can't blame them for not no. wanting to take risks when everyone around them is yes. getting laid off, so they're scared to say, I get it. Well, um, it's just a one problem anecdote. for them as well. Yeah. Just one anecdote within Warner. Um, I'm dealing on an acquisition side because we've completed feature uh, documentaries, and the acquisition team told me cross-company at, at Warner, they had 32 people on the team. Now they're down to four. So when you lose... Which slows the entire pace down. Slows the entire pace everyone. down. Exactly. Yeah. So we're in this bottleneck of consideration. So how are you all responding to this marketplace? Because it's a tough one, right? It's a really tough one. I mean, Unscripted, again, is one of those sectors we talk about as always being tough, but it does seem it is, it is particularly harsh at the moment. Is that, is that fair? And, and you know, how, are you, how are you adjusting to that? I would say speed and packaging making sure your ideas get out there as quickly as you have them get them and they're ready and then they're baked and you know they're put together but getting them out there because it, while it's moving slowly there are all of us are hustling and trying to get things out there so I think you have to get your ideas out there and I think the more pieces you can put together whether it's the perfect showrunner the perfect director or an on-air talent whatever that is to help make it undeniable we talk about making stuff undeniable to the buyers all the time that they can't get it someplace else that it's something they can they can see the billboard they can see the tile they can see what it's going to look like You've going knocked out, out every the reason they would say no. Right. Don't give them a reason to say no. I, I also think it's interesting because with the world of you know Zoom and what we've, you know, we used to go into every room and sit and pitch and yeah. you, most of your pitches now are Zoom. I kind of try to do the opposite now and do sit downs where it's like, let's talk about your programming and your needs. And I've gotten a lot of in the room buys that way of directions or development by just simply being like, hi, face Old to face, yeah, let's talk about your needs, and yeah. it makes a big difference, a significant amount of them, but also in the way of figuring out um, how to ensure sales, as we spoke earlier, on reimagining those co-pros. There's much more of an incentive for a network to um, trigger something if the price point is much lower yep. and there's an upside for them to say okay this will cost us this for this bigger larger show so I'm seeing I have many deals in that arena multiple
That's been a big benefit. I mean, especially for us. It's like the market has turned into this very premium or very sort of lower cost. And if you need a budget of making up a number of buck fifty and you can put together international plus tax credits plus whatever, your ask to the U.S. is significantly less than it would be normally. And that's been really interesting for them from a business proposition. Right, because they're getting a show for 150, 200, but it actually is a 400, $500,000 show. And they don't care about having the entire world anymore the way they did. Yeah, just nothing to add to that. I agree exactly what they're saying. That's been our strategy. I mean, for us, we haven't been aggressively outselling right now. We've used this, the, the strike as a moment, obviously, to, to finish up some series that we're working on, do a lot of development, but also part of our strategy um, with the celebrity component or the high impact component is making partnerships with large executive producing partners, celebrity ex uh, executive producer partners to help us leverage to differentiate ourselves in the space. That's been part of our strategy. And this is actually the first market we're going out to really sell since the strike has happened, sort of by design. So what are you really hoping to come away from Content London with you know, this year? What are the, the, the key things that you're here to find out about and, and you know, the, the kind of uh, conversations that you're keen to have? I think a lot of them, as we've said, kind of revolve around these international co-pros and bringing more money into the U.S. in order to get those commissions with those lead buyers there. Um, and for us, in addition to meeting, you know, U.K. production companies to talk about consolidation, you know, there's a lot of great independent small production companies here who we love to talk to for, you know, various reasons, whether it's partnering or investment and just trying to build those relationships. Double down on the co-pros. We have a project with October Films. I mean, you could, as a U.S. producer, you could try to sell into the U.K., but you're only really going to get pre-sale dollars. You're not going to get real dollars. So if you want to get real money, you need a UK producer on it that is sort of that, that security for that UK network that they can actually deliver a UK-focused show. So we have a project that's a four-parter. There's a big UK component in one of the stories. And I said, you know, I know them very well. And I said, you guys, this is for you to take out. Get that bigger money for us. We're happy to co-produce. Yep, I mean, we have to share. And that's what we need to do going forward. For us, it's co-pros also. We're looking to... Uh, identify projects and partners in other territories outside of the U.S. that we can partner with as a way to sort of further diversify what we're doing. We're spreading uh, into the U.K. and also we've been focusing on Latin America a lot lately as well. Same when it comes to co-pros and but expansive outside of just London looking at places even Neom uh, in Saudi Arabia working with them closely and then also working with our uh, sister company in Singapore and looking in Holland and Belgium and Italy and Greece doing a lot of uh, territorial relationships with even directly to networks there and, and it's been a really interesting expansion of kind of more global production. We haven't talked about AI but it has been a massive massive story as far as the industry is concerned this year a key part of the strikes um, and it's a key part of content London as well. I think everybody's anticipating that it is going to transform the industry in the, in the years to come. Do any of you, you know, make use of it already? Are you using the technology? Are you, are you afraid of it? Have you seen some great examples of it? What are your thoughts on AI? I was with somebody last night who runs a significant company and they use an exceptional amount of AI, which I was, I was like, that's interesting. From putting visual uh, uh, graphics together, as in uh, ideas when it comes to a look of a stage, to um, what a, co a possible game component could look like, or gaming. Personally, we don't use a ton of AI in our company. We will use it, great titles can come out of it, which is fun. Um, it's you know, for that, for sure. Yes, putting together, but not, uh, I know we use some in our editing, it was built within our bays. I know there is, uh, you know, uh, my post team could speak further to that, but as a team, we are using it minimally, more for additive, less for complete vision, if you will. In our decks, we use it a lot to create visuals. We haven't really, to my knowledge, we haven't really used it much in production yet, but um, it's, it's making the, the decks look as stylish and as slick as possible, that's a big part of it. And I would argue that AI isn't just going to change our industry, it's going to change every industry. So it's just a matter of how it infiltrates different departments, different uh, things that we do. So I, even though we're not all using it, and we're, uh, we're like you, Jenny, kind of additive at this point, I think over time and with, as younger people come into the industry who are so much more adept at using it because it'll be second nature to them, it will evolve into being a bigger part of it. Yeah, for us, I mean, I'm very... Um, I pay attention to it quite a bit. I know everything that's happening. We have not 
implemented any sort of strategy whatsoever within the company at all yet. We've, on a very limited basis, we tested it in some development stuff and some deck stuff, but to be honest, uh, we haven't used it really at all to any significant, in any significant way. So if it's not AI, what are going to be the biggest changes in the business that we're going to see in 2024? Well, I think we still have another consolidation. We only have more consolidation coming. I mean, we know it's been talked about. I'm not breaking any, any stories here, but uh, what's going to happen with Discovery, NBC, and Paramount? There's probably one big consolidation left at minimum. So like that, Discovery is able to do another deal sometime in April of 24. It's coming quick. So what is that going to mean for the rest of us and everyone that works there? TBD. I would agree. Yeah, I, I, when it comes to 2024, I think we are all looking at, as we have mentioned, an opening of the now what was kind of stagnant in the buyers. So we're kind of utilizing that um, you know, opportunity to re-engage, get shows sold, different ways of how we're selling and business models is really key to success. You can't. You have to diversify your portfolio, if you will, in your in your uh, approach. If you don't, and you're just going straight, you know, kind of how we used to back in the day, um, you're not going to find success. So I don't think it's going to be aggressively different in 2024. I just think we, as a companies, are going to be pivoting aggressively to be successful. There's as much commercial creativity that's going to be required as much as actual content creativity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 100%. It, we just we can't just go in and pitch and, and get commissions the way we do. And the, the flip side of that is the opportunity to maybe own some IP in a way American producers haven't before. And you know we've always been kind of that. You know our market hasn't allowed that. Our country hasn't allowed that. And I think this will allow us to not only get shows commissioned, but also to monetize them in the future in a way we haven't had the opportunity to do before. Yeah, we're leaning into that now with with fast channels. We have five fast channels. Thankfully, you know as a Canadian company, we own thousands of hours of catalog. That's been a big part of the strategy and that's actually, believe it or not, in our first year it's actually real money. So we're kind of leaning into that. That's exactly what ownership brings, is ability to build fast channels because there's outlets for a different you know, level of monetizing your, your content. Elan, a final thought from you, big stories of uh, 2024. Big moment, right? The big moment, <laughs> Well, I mean, for, to me it's, it's exciting. I mean, there's all this change and I think the ability to um, to, to be nimble, as I said a little bit earlier, really is going to be um, uh, the most important part because the ability to, to spread and, and to diversify and to be nimble and to pivot to what these opportunities are going to be, I think ultimately is going to be the biggest challenge but also the most exciting way to sort of innovate. And I think there's opportunity to innovate here and that's what we're sort of constantly keeping an eye on is just like, how do we innovate within the space? How do we do things just a little bit differently that differentiates ourselves? And when there's so much change happening, I think that's the opportunity to do so. That's, so that's what we're looking at. Asylum's Jody Flynn, Cineflix's JC Mills, Creative Chaos's Elon Arbeleda, and Critical Content's Jenny Daly. Here's my next little chat with another set of execs. I'm delighted to be joined today by Toby Dormer, who's the Executive Vice President of Unscripted TV at Toronto and Los Angeles-based Blink 49 Studios. James Jury, Head of Scripted TV at Cineflix Media, also with offices in Toronto, Montreal, New York, London and Dublin. Uh, and Karen Radzner, who's Head of Development at Sydney, Auckland and Los Angeles-based independent producer PhotoPlay. Welcome everybody, thank, thank you, you for joining us. Um, let's just go around and have a, a quick introduction to all of your businesses, please, and uh, just tell us a little bit about you know, what you've been doing at Content London this year. Toby. Um, so I work with Blink49 Studios, we're relatively new, uh, two years old almost exactly. Um, I joined in about a, just over a year ago to run the unscripted business. Uh, we have offices in, as you mentioned, Toronto, uh, Los Angeles, and we recently acquired a company in Vancouver, so we're right across the, uh, the, the, the country. Um, we, our anchor investor is Fifth Season, the distributor, also our lead strategic partner. And Blink49 stands for the 49th parallel between Canada and the US. So. We are a Canadian company, but we have deep roots into the US. So we, uh, we produce for buyers on both sides of the border quite often at the same time. And uh, what's been your focus here this week? Um, meeting other producers, I think uh, the, the, it's definitely an interesting time for the industry. And I think people are looking for partnerships as a way out. So co-productions, um, finding projects to work on together has definitely been the focus. James. Yeah, James Jury. We're from I'm from Cineflix. Um, again, a Toronto-based company or Canadian-based company. Um, we've been 25 years, just celebrating our 25 years uh, anniversary. I'm looking after scripted for um, Cineflix, which really 
covers everything from development through to production and um, sales at the end of it all. Um, and we're here really to uh, meet producers, um, to hear about what's going on in the business and those shows that are being developed. But we're also very lucky to have had um, two of our shows um, in sessions um, as a hot pick um, and in the pitch sessions as well. Um, so we've been there sort of supporting those. Um, Solo Marianne was in the hot picks and um, Son of a Song God in the um, pitch sessions, which Karen, I'm sure, will allude to a bit later on. So, uh, Karen, tell us more about yourself and uh, yeah, your relationship as well with, with Cineflix. Yeah, so Photoplay Films is, as you said, an independent production company based in Sydney, our film and TV business. Um, and traditionally, the company had invested in quality feature films from you know, visionary talent like Ivan Sen, Warwick Thornton, Kate Shortland, and decided two years ago to put that money into having our own scripted business instead, which is when I joined. And uh, so since then we have made two shows, one for one, two little shows, just to get kick off the slate really quickly. One for SBS, one for ABC, and one of those Appetite is nominated for a Rose Door and a C21 Drama Award tonight. Um, and Song of the Sun God, which is our prestige. Uh, premium six by one hour drama series, which is an adaptation of a, an award-winning, best-selling Australian novel. We are working on developing that with Cineflix, who have co been co-financing development with Screen Australia and Screen New South Wales. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's your first time being here, you know, how have you found things, uh, you know, this, this week? Well, I was really happy uh, when we got the drama series pitch for Song of the Sun God behind us because then I could actually focus on making the most of the conference and the sessions and all the amazing panels. Uh, it's been fascinating and it really, for someone, you know, we, us Aussies, there's quite a few of us here, but we are 25 hours flight away. So to be here in this international marketplace and really seeing what the, you know, competition is about and how the European market and the, the um, US market and the UK market, how they all work together, that's what we're looking to, to do more of. So it's great being here. It's obviously been a, a period of tremendous change the last 12 months, longer even I suppose. We had a, a kind of a, a boom in, in uh, production, particularly in the scripted space, which was followed by, by one in unscripted as well. And, um, you know, there's no escaping the fact that we have seen a, a contraction over the, the past year. A Netflix correction of sorts has kind of rippled across the industry. And, uh, and then on top of that, there's, there's been the strikes which have been taking place in the US. How's all of that affected you in, in 2023? It's an interesting one because I've been thinking about it a lot. I feel like C21 is kind of like the exclamation mark on the end of a, of a turbulent year. And we're trying to kind of work out how we move forward from here. And as I'm sort of talking to producers and also talking to broadcasters and platforms, it feels that the model isn't going to change too much in that we still have demand. The viewers still really want high-end drama. They want to watch it, they want to consume it as they did before. And we still have supply because there's great producers, there's great stories being made. Um, so the problem really is how do we do the bit in the middle? Which is, are we going to have to tweak that model a little bit to what we've been doing previously? And I think collectively the conversation I've been having here is yes. The words that keep on coming up are co-production and localization. I think we're really seeing a move back to local commissions, um, even from the streamers who are setting up local offices and looking to commission locally. But our budgets are still of a size that that's not enough. We're going to have to find ways to really fill the deficits that are being uh, that are coming, and that means that producers, distributors, have got to work together and really find the best way forward. Co-production is an obvious way of doing that, but there are other ways as well, working with financiers or putting together pre-sales. And with Solon Marianne, um, we were very lucky in bringing together both co-producers and pre-sales before we sort of went in to shoot our first, first um, scene, uh, which meant that we were able to close our financing in a slightly different, different way. And I think we will continue to do that more and more now as we move forward from in this sort of new dawn, if you like. Um, yeah, it's been a very confusing year, I think, um, to put it mildly. Uh, and I think from on the unscripted side, we thought that the strike 
would lead to an upsurge in unscripted programming because that has happened in the past and the opposite happened. So we're all scratching our heads waiting for this big boom and it never came. Um, so we've had to adapt. Uh, it, that combined with a downturn in orders from broadcasters in the UK, US and Canada um, has meant that we've had to be more resourceful and creative. I think that the buzzword I've heard, the buzz phrase, is creative deal making that everyone seems to be talking about. We're lucky being Canadian that we've always had to do that. You know, we have to bring in tax credits, we have to bring in distribution advances, um, multiple broadcast partners. So we were used to it, but it's definitely getting increasingly challenging. But, you know, we just have to keep on moving forward and great projects will still find a home. I think that's what we always believe in it. The create, leave with the creative, find that great format, find that great documentary series, and you will find a home for it if you look hard enough. Yes, I entirely agree with that. It's just really focusing in on talent and creative, which is what we all want to be doing anyway. Um, Australia has been affected by the strikes to some degree, but at the same time, our local commissioning is so consistent and strong. The work that the commissioners are supporting is bold. It's really, it's reaching the international markets. It's, you know, from what I hear talking to people here, there are Australian TV shows, scripted shows, on screens everywhere. People know our work, so it's it's a pretty positive outlook actually out of Australia. Our budgets have increased like everybody else's. Inflation is real, um, so we want to be doing more co-productions as well just so that we can stay competitive in terms of the creative that we can produce. Um, but yeah, no, it's pretty positive in Australia. We haven't been too affected. In terms of the way that the you know the, the, the streamers have kind of uh, well the US studios have returned to the licensing business, having gone through a period of withholding rights to to shows for their own streamers, and at the same time we've seen the standalone streamers like Netflix and Amazon begin to sort of move into licensing in the case of Amazon and, and generally becoming a little bit more flexible. That's my understanding of things in not wanting to take necessarily rights in, in every single territory. How, how have those particular dynamics kind of changed what you've, you've done or you know, opened opportunities potentially? Um, I think every project's different. I think you know, there's, there's some where they definitely want to keep all the rights, especially if it feels like a property that has a global potential. Um, but equally, you know, there does seem to be more of a, an understanding that being flexible is the way forward. I think, we have, I think everyone has to do that because that old model just doesn't necessarily work anymore. From a distributor's point of view, I think it offers actually opportunity really because um, we are on board a couple of um, streamer commission series, Last King and the Cross, which was commissioned by Paramount Plus out of Australia, um, The Doll Factory, which was launched uh, on Paramount Plus in the UK yesterday, two days ago. Um, and each of those, we came on board at an early stage after the Paramount Plus commission and took up the rest of the world um, and now taking those out into the market Last King of the Cross, we did a pre-sale with Sky in the UK, Germany and, and Italy. And so it really, rather than 18 to 24 months ago where the streamers were really looking at doing global deals, producers were liking those global deals in that sort of cost plus model, uh, we're now returning to a situation we were probably um, three, four years ago in which it's much more building the financing through a local commission and finding those other elements to come on board and so from a purely commercial distributors point of view there are more opportunities because of that. In Australia the it's, it's newer for us to have local offices for the streamers anyway so we have been working consistently in that model of three to four years ago where we have our local commission from a broadcaster or now a streamer and then we're working with distributors um, to put together the rest of the, the package, be that as deficit or with pre-sales as well. And then we have fantastic rebates in Australia as well um, and really good funding, um, soft money. So it hasn't made a huge difference to us. It's kind of business as usual with the streamers just taking these local rights. I really think that's true. Australia are kind of a bit ahead. Of what I feel like we're heading to where they are already. They've had these, they have big budgets which can't be, fill, can't be filled in Australia alone. And everyone from Screen Australia to the local funds, the producers, and then the commissioning broadcasters are well aware of what producers have to do once all those are in place. There is still a, another element to come. And I think we're all gonna be heading in that, in that direction quicker, pretty quickly. 
um, and it's interesting speaking to, to Karen and how they, they've been doing this for um, quite a while already. Um, yeah, we are also lucky because we have a number of co-production treaties like all over the world, Canada, the UK, France, Germany. We've just um, ratified one with India as well, like literally this month. So the co-production opportunities are really strong and I think that's where we will start being more active is choosing projects that can organically work naturally with those um, other territories so that we can, as I said earlier, just have those bigger budgets to play with and be competitive. Those co-production treaties and I guess some of the, the soft money that you were kind of referring to as well in terms of support in, in Canada and, and in Australia, you know, the, the funds that exist there, um, as well as the support of the public broadcasters as well, particularly in those in those territories. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, what about the status of, of your broadcast partners and, and, you know, the way that you're working with them as well, that, you know, there have been cutbacks, everyone's under pressure, but at the same time, I suppose, uh, I'm getting some sense that their consistency, their longevity, their, you know, enduring uh, existence is, is, has also been a kind of bit of a, an anchor in, in quite a, a turbulent time as well. Is that over generous? Is that my, a mischaracterization? I don't know. I wouldn't say we have any preferred uh, commissioning partners, but it is, of course, I mean, you, it, it is there in the, to be seen that the local broadcasters, in particular public broadcasters and big terrestrials, have been consistent throughout this period. They're, their commission budgets have stayed the same. Um, their, the amount of money they can put into shows have stayed the same. Their taste has changed a little bit. It's been driven by the streamers. They're taking more risks. They're driving into new subject matters, which is great um, and really interesting and helps producers to have more options when they're taking shows out. So I think that's been benefited by the, by the streamers coming into our markets. But of course, they're, they've been fantastic supporters of local commissions, I think. It was um, Hollywood Reporter came out with a, um, a, a couple of weeks ago saying that 75% of budgets was on European was spent on European originals in Europe, and I think that shows they've always been there. No matter what the streamers are doing, whether they're contracting or growing, there is a consistency among European um, and local um, funds in the market. But I think there's also this uh, there's a willingness to kind of work together. You know, it is a tough time both for broadcasters and producers and I think we just all want to work together to get those great projects off the ground you know because the broadcasters are heavily invested in the creative as well you know they, they have passion for certain projects um, so we have to <coughs> excuse me work as a work as a team to get it done which is I think something perhaps that's a positive thing that's come out of the last 12 months um, that just yeah willingness to, to, to work together as a team to get things done um. What about other things? Other things that I haven't raised uh, include AI, obviously, which has been a massive uh, topic throughout 2023. And I think, uh, you know, people are thinking it's going to transform the industry significantly. It's a big part of, of Content London this year. And we've got uh, an AI festival, which is, which is coming up next year as well, that we're planning. So um, that's one of the, the, the hot topics. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that or, or any other things, you know, within the business that are kind of, you know, top of mind for you right now. It's probably more topical for scripted, I think, at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I weighed into the AI debate with great trepidation, knowing that I know nothing about it. But what I do know is that, I'm, and I'm actually genuinely in life positive about AI. I think what it can, I think we always focus on using our like human instinct to think everything's evil. We always focus on that it's going to take over the world and be like terminated. But actually, there's so many positives in terms of research and time-consuming elements that we do, which can AI can really transform. And if you look at it from analyzing scripts and how they could work in an international market, you look at cast, how they transfer into the international market, you feel that uh, we've always worked quite analog in those decision-making processes, and you feel AI can really turbocharge that to an extent. What you don't want is us all working off the same algorithm because then you stop people making brave and exciting decisions and you never get Squid Game or you never get these kind of really exciting shows which kind of transform our landscape. So that's my fear, but I think on oh, I'm really positive about what it, what it can do. Caveated with I don't really know what I'm talking about when it comes to AI. <laughs> Yes, I equally don't know what I'm talking about. I've been deep in production and development and trying to ignore all the conversation about AI to some degree, just 
while it settles around me, but I was a massive Asimov fan. <laughs> and uh, so I have a natural fear of AI. Um, but I am also actually really excited about the opportunities. And as long as it's regulated properly and you know, that the, the right structures are put in place, then I think it's coming, it's here, so let's make the most of it. So let's finish up by gazing into the future a little bit by looking ahead to, to 2024. Um, tell us about, you know, the things that you're particularly excited about within your own organisations and, uh, you know, hopefully brighter times as well, what you're excited about uh, as far as the industry is concerned. Um, I think I'm, I'm very hopeful for 2024. I think um, we've, 2023 has been a great building year for us in terms of development. We've had so many projects in paid development working with broadcasters and they're all, you know, half a dozen are on the cusp of, of green light now, um, including the ones we already have in production. So I'm hoping that at the start of the year we'll just see a, a flurry of activity and, and orders. I think that's the big thing I've noticed this year is I'm used to reading in C21 and other publications about new orders, especially on the unscripted, there's the volume. just hasn't been there this year. So fingers crossed for a, a change and a bounce back early next year. Yeah, look, got to be hopeful, and I, and I, I genuinely am. We have um, three shows going into production in the, in the new year. Uh, one announced, which is Verdi with BBC One, uh, working with Magical Society, which is a really, really exciting show. And the first time we've been on board a BBC One primetime um, series. Um, two others, which we haven't quite announced yet, one shooting in Australia, the other in Canada, which is kind of our, if you like, our sort of um, MO, those markets. We really enjoy working with them and working um, with series there. And we have returning shows in Last King of the Cross and Whitstable Pearl, uh, Minister 2, all coming through as well. And then some really exciting development projects, most of all uh, Song of the Sun God, which has so much potential um, to really do what we said before, which is take a bit of a risk in a market, um, that, but really with a story which will resonate to all markets internationally. Um, and that's one that we've got high on our radar for 24. Yeah, and Song of the Sun God is definitely a big focus for me looking into the year ahead. It's, it is a really uplifting story, but also um, taps into the, you know, I guess, doesn't shy away from what's happening in the world right now. It's about, it gets, gets behind the headlines about the Tamil Tigers. Um, so in terms of, you know, freedom fighters or terrorists and, you know, human shield or genocide, it, it really digs into that question. But through the eyes of three generations of Tamil women in a Tamil family and with a contemporary thriller kind of um, point to set off from and, um, I, you know, Claire Mundell is our UK co-producer on that Synchronicity Films and we are just really actively and with great excitement working on taking that to market now and hopefully in the next 12 months we'll um, be greenlit and making it. Blink49's Toby Dormer, Cineflix's James Jury and Photoplay's Karen Radziner speaking with me at Content London 2023 earlier this week. I should point out that the project Karen referenced there, Song of the Sun God, did in fact win the International Drama Series pitch competition at last night's C21 International Drama Awards. Visit c21media.net for the full list of winners. You'll find all of our coverage there from the event, plus plenty more to delve into, and there'll be more in the weeks ahead, both on C21 FM and the podcast, which will be back, as usual, next Friday. But for now, that's all from me. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.